Today's message title is the King of the Jews. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to the book of John, the book of John chapter 19. The word of God says, beginning in verse 1, Then Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate, therefore, went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring you forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Ecce homo, behold the man. Moving on, we see Jesus is then crucified. And going to verse 19. Actually, let's begin reading in uh, verse 16. Begin reading there. Then delivered he him, and therefore took, uh, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I think it's uh, really amazing the number of times that Jesus is referred to as the king or the king of Israel, or the king of the Jews, uh, towards the, actually in the last week of his life, especially uh, in regards to his uh, trial and his crucifixion. And uh, so as we look at that, I want to, first of all, take us to the old city of Jerusalem. If you were here in Sunday school, we were in the Galilee. We talked a lot about Jesus' ministry in this, around the Sea of Galilee. But now we're going to go to Jerusalem where Jesus, uh, of course, died for us, where he was buried, and he rose again uh, triumphantly over the grave. But uh, now I want to take you to the old city of Jerusalem. This is a current layout of the old city. Believe it or not, this is not really that old. <laughs> the walls that you see around there are only around 500 years old. He said, well, that, Pastor, that's pretty old. Well, when you consider Jerusalem is 3,000 years old, it's new. Okay, This was actually walls that were put up by Suleiman the Magnificent in the 1500s. Uh, but nonetheless, there are still some outlines of what the city was like during the time of Jesus. And so I want to direct your attention here. This is, of course, the Temple Mount. This is where uh, Herod's temple once stood, the second temple that was later destroyed in the year 70. But uh, across town, you will come... Actually, let me bring you over here. Over here at Mount Zion, which is today, this area, which is outside the city wall today, was actually enclosed during the time of Jesus. Okay, Because of wars and destructions, things have shifted. So bear with me for a second. But in this area of Mount Zion, near here, is actually uh, David's tomb. And above it, believe it or not, the floor above David's tomb today is traditionally known as the place of the Last Supper. <laughs> so it's interesting the way that history is stacked upon one another there. Nonetheless, um, now we come here, Jesus is then, uh, he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is over here. That is, of course, where he's betrayed, where he's arrested. He is then brought to Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house, which had been right down here in this area. And from there, Jesus is then led to Pilate, then to Herod, then Pilate again. And then Jesus, of course, given his cross. And then Jesus is then brought outside of the city. And there's two major views of where that would be, the most traditional view, it would be that of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, and uh, it actually does have a very long history going back to the third century, uh, and remi remember this, that this here was actually outside of the city wall during the time of Christ, okay? 
The other predominant view is, and this is actually a very recent view, meaning about 150 years old view, it's pretty recent, and that is the garden tomb today, and that's where a lot of uh, tourists will go. And it's, it's a very beautiful place, very special garden. It's actually uh, run by uh, British uh, Christians that are there. And so nonetheless, these are the two traditional places where Jesus was crucified and then buried. And of course, we believe that he rose again. He's alive forevermore. But I want us to take you to one place here, and that is here on this city wall near Jaffa Gate. And this here would have been the very outskirts of, this, of the city of the time of Jesus. And uh, you see here at the, the Jaffa Gate, there's a place called David's Citadel, or also known as the Tower of David. Okay? Give one more click there. There. All right. Well, go back one. So. There we go. There we go. It'll work with me. All right. So this is the Tower of David. This is what it looks like. Um, and so there are runes from several different eras, from the Ottoman era, Crusader era. And you've got to remember there's layers of history in Jerusalem. You've got 3,000 years of history uh, that are built, stacked, one on top of another. David's Citadel is really amazing, though. Um, and so this is Ottoman, then you go eventually down to Herodian era, uh, which is Roman times that you see here. And so this here was actually the palace of Herod the Great when he was in Jerusalem. And so this is a place where um, actually some research has been done where um, it is believed that this is also probably where Pilate, Pontius Pilate, also was housed, maybe in a different part of the complex, obviously, but this is prob probably where he stayed. So between Pilate and, and Herod, it's, in fact, this is kind of my leaning. I'm not preaching this. This is my opinion. I'll leave it at that, okay? This is where I believe that probably the trials of Jesus took place. It was probably here at the site or at least in the vicinity of the site. That's just my view. If you disagree with me, invite me over for coffee. We'll have a wonderful discussion about it, right? So nonetheless, this is important. Why is this? Because I believe it is at this place, at this palace here of Herod, that to, uh, a main question that served as bookends for the life of Jesus occurred. And that's this, this question. Remember at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, wise men came from the east. We three kings, we don't know if there was three or not. We're not going to talk about the story. But they come to Jerusalem following the star. And what do they do? They go not to Bethlehem. They go to Jerusalem to talk to Herod the Great. And they ask this question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews where we have come to worship him? That same location. Now at the end of Jesus' life, okay, uh, is now he's before Pilate. Pilate asks him this question, are you the king of the Jews? That same question occurred at that same spot and serves as bookends of Jesus' life. Interesting. One thing I want to point out, too, is this. When we say the Tower of David, it has nothing to do with King David. <laughs> it has nothing to do with King David. It was actually um, the, uh, the Crusaders that they came and they uh, admired the building and the, the design of it. And they said, man, there's only one person who could have built that. That could have been King David. That was named uh, about 2,000 years after David was there, okay? So, anyway, so it has nothing to do with King David, but I would say the son of David definitely has a key part in that, okay? That's referring to Jesus the Messiah. So, as we think about this, let me just say this, that David's citadel stands out as an icon iconic landmark in the old city of Jerusalem, like I said. Um, and as we think about this, this is a phrase that Pilate asked, and we said it, or actually we looked here in, in chapter... Uh, 18, John 18, look with me here very quickly, John 18, 
And this is where Jesus is on trial before Pilate, verse 33. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? That's the question that we have here. I think we often, we just read this phrase, we bypass it. And, but I think that it's important we know the great significance of what is being asked to Jesus. We see, first of all, the promise of a coming kingdom. And you've got to remember this. Why did Jesus need to come in the first place? It was in God's grand plan. We know that because of sin, Adam's sin, because of his sin, we sinned all, right? And that affected all men. All of us are sinners. We can't get away from that. Each and every one of us had the judgment of God upon us because of our sin. We are born of that. We're born of that want to to sin. But we need a Redeemer. Thank God, God promises a Redeemer. In Genesis 3.15, which is the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first mention of the Gospel, really, that there is a Redeemer that's coming that will crush the head of the serpent. Okay? But also that the, the Redeemer himself would be crushed. The Redeemer himself would be uh, have a mortal wound if that in, in that regard. So understand this, that the promise of a Redeemer was coming. We also see here, and we covered this a little bit on Wednesday night. We'll do it again uh, this coming Wednesday where we're talking about the importance of the Davidic covenant. There are several covenants in the Bible. Uh, the Edenic covenant, the, um, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to know more about that, come on Wednesday night. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But we know that in uh, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read of the Davidic covenant where God promised David. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. God says, not so fast, you're a man of bloody wars. I'm going to have your son Solomon do that. It's interesting, God, or David wanted to build a house for God. God says, no, and God says, I'm going to build a house for you, David. That's exactly what happened. And he says here, I'm going to build a family, a house, a family, a lineage that will be eternal. There will not fail a man to sit on the throne of David. Okay? So there's a promise of a, of a king like David that will be there. In fact, it's from that, that line. And so there's a prophecy of that. Let's go through a few passages together. Let's do, I think this is important as we do that. Look at one of these passages in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. These are familiar verses. Usually we read around, these around Christmas time. But it's very important what God's plan is for the ages and through the coming Messiah. Look with me in verse 6, 6 and 7, familiar verses, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. And look carefully, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So there is a prophecy about the Messiah's kingdom, that he will sit on the throne of David. He will come to rule and to reign. We talked in, uh, in Sunday school this morning about where Jesus, he transitioned his life from Nazareth, and now he moves to Capernaum. And we talked about Nazareth and the importance of it in, over in Isaiah chapter 11. Look at me, just a few chapters over. Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says here, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay? And then several verses down, it talks about the, the, uh, the glory and the rule that will look like. The, the line will lay down by the lamb, etc. Okay? So there is a promise of a coming, and, and talking about the, uh, there shall be a root or a stem out of Jesse. It's interesting, that's the name of Nazareth. What Nazareth means, that Netzeret means shoot down, 
or root town is the idea. And so this is very important as we see here. So the pro- there was a prophecy of a coming kingdom, Messiah who will rule on the throne of David. There was also a prophecy of an eternal king. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be littlest among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto thee, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, from ancient times. And as we see this here, there is an eternal ruler who will fill that position as the ruler of Israel. Very important. It's interesting here that the people of, of Israel, during the time of Christ, they picked up on this. There was, there was clues. Some people did not miss who Jesus was. In uh, G- Jesus, when he was uh, in Jerusalem in John chapter 7 during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, where he said, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink, for out of his belly shall full of rivers of living water. He said, I will supply all your needs. And the people's reaction to that, they said this, Hath not Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? They were putting the, the, trying to connect the dots that perhaps this Jesus is really the son of David, is really that ruler that has been prophesied by the prophets of old. People, there's some people who did not miss that mark, okay? And then now we come to another important prophecy, and that kind of brings us up where we are today. Zechariah chapter 9.9. You can turn there. Zechariah 9.9. I think it's a good exercise to thumb through the scriptures every now and then. So, Zechariah 9 9, this is a prophecy that coincides with what today is, Palm Sunday. All right, so coming in here, Zechariah 9 9 says this Roni, Roni, but Zion says, Rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. For behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and a colt the full of an ass. It's, it's, it's important as we see there, when we see how Jesus comes as the king, and a lot of times we just think, oh, Jesus is the king. But he's not just any king. He's a king that fulfills the promise that God made with David, that there will not be left a man to sit on the throne of David. Jesus ultimately fulfills that role as the son of David. He comes in, and he comes in just as Scripture says, when he comes down what we know as today, the triumphal entry. He comes down the Mount of Olives. He comes, and remember, he stops halfway, and that's where he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Remember that? And as he then comes down, he comes in, and the people shouted to him. Remember they said, they cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! They were understanding this is the son of David. They were looking for this king to come and to free them, to redeem them. I think there's a couple things that we can understand. The fever pitch that was going on. Remember what was going on here. This was the 10th day of the month Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. This is from preparation just a few days before Passover would begin. On the 10th day of the month of Nisan, according to Exodus chapter 12, this is the day, according to the laws of Moses, where the children of Israel had to select a lamb that they would watch and observe, and then to prepare it for the Passover. Okay? That was that day. They were coming for Lamb Selection Day. As the people were coming down, and remember this, according to Josephus and other other historians, that Jerusalem swelled about three times its size during the time of Passover. So there's a lot of pilgrims coming, a lot of people from abroad, a lot of people wondering, is Jesus going to go to the feast if if, if, if he's going to be there? 
And so a lot of things were going on. Not very, just moments ago, Jesus had resurrected Lazarus. I mean, there was a lot of anticipation for Jesus to present himself. And what greater time than at Passover? A time where they remember that God delivered the Jewish people from slavery and bondage in Egypt. Well, you know what? It wasn't much better at that moment because they were under the bondage of Rome. They were looking for that redeemer, that deliverer who come. And how do we know that? Because of what they cried. The people cried, Hosanna, Hoshana, Hoshiana. We think of Hosanna as just being praise. But the word Hosanna literally means, Hoshiana, literally means save us now. Save us now. They're crying for deliverance, for a savior. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. Another thing we see is that they laid their clothes, their garments before Jesus. That's what you do for a king, not for anyone. They say Jesus, of course, riding on that donkey coming down the Mount of Olives. How important that would have been to the people. And understanding, wait a minute, isn't that what Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years before that? Also, another thing, this is important. What do they, what do the people wave during that time? They're waving the palm branches. Now, today's Palm Sunday. We remember that, and we kind of think, oh, that's just a beautiful thing. Don't you just love palm trees, especially at the beach, right? You know, kick your feet up and enjoy that. Well, in this time here, talking about the palm trees here, think of this. They're waving palm branches. Think of it as the Israeli flag 2,000 years ago. So in other words, this was a national fever pitch. They were anticipating a great deliverer. They were anticipating a king, a king that was promised by God that would rule and reign and take care of all their problems, basically. Question is this, do the people really know their king? Did they really understand what was at stake? The question is for us today, do you know this king? Do you know this king that has been promised? Well, we see this, that when finally... When Jesus finally uh, came to that point, we see how things changed just in a few days. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected. As Isaiah chapter 53 says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus died a cruel death for us. I invite you to turn back to John 19, where we kind of focus now upon the king. Now, so there's a lot in the background we could talk about of why uh, Jesus was um, betrayed, why he was uh, on trial, why he was put to death. Remember, Jesus, did he gave his life. Understand that. No man takes my life from me. I give it freely. And so as we see this, this is something very important we, we have to see. That Jesus dies, and some people say, well, Jesus died maybe as a troublemaker, as a sedition. What are you going to say? The thing is this, what caught Pilate's ear? Why should we try? You know, they have religious law, let them deal with them. In order to, at that time, in those years, in order to have capital punishment, they had to have had the blessing, if you will, the permission of Rome in order to do that. That's why they had to go through Pilate in order to do that. When it comes, what's the charge? He made himself king. Okay, so we think about Palm Sunday. I'm a little bit behind on the slides. Sorry. Here's Palm Sunday. By the way, this morning, got to watch it live on, on YouTube, the, the procession that was going down. You can still walk this path today, by the way. Okay, pretty amazing. But anyways, let's take us now here of when Jesus was on trial. Let's look again back in John 19. We know that when Jesus, uh, and the, the gospel accounts mention this, 
that Jesus uh, says here in, in verse 1 and 19, Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And watch carefully. The, the soldiers plated a crown of thorns put on his head. They put on him a purple robe. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. It's interesting that what was going on here was most likely a game that was being played called the Game of the Kings. Basilero is another name for it. But the Game of the Kings was a very different game. You've got to remember this, that if you're a Roman soldier on the, on the outposts of the Roman Empire, uh, you were preparing, you were training, yes, occasionally fighting, but really a soldier's life was a lot of waiting. For those who have served in the military, probably you're doing that. You're waiting, and you have to find time to do it. You know, to do find things to do during your time. So as you're as think of this, the Roman soldiers they would often do this, and they would play sometimes what was known as the game of the kings, the king's game. And what they would do is they would usually uh, select maybe an unfortunate prisoner, sometimes one of their own folks. If they did that. But anyways, they would uh, declare this person a king. They would have a little game similar to like a chess or parcheesi type game. And uh, as they would play the game, the winner would become the king for a day. And there they would dress him up. They would bow before him. They would serve him whatever food, whatever they wanted. You know, you, you, it was kind of a mockery, but that's what they would do. And then finally, after that day was spent, they basically took, the, took that unfortunate poor soul and they killed him. Okay, and that was the game of the kings. In a very similar way, that's exactly what you have here. Now, what you see there and and on the screen is was found in a place called the Lithostrotos, uh, which is on today the route of the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, the way of the sorrows. And so on there, this is actually a, the, a Roman game, exactly what I was mentioning, the game of the kings. So at least put in your mind's eye, this is what was going on when Jesus is suffering, being scourged, being mocked having that th- crown of thorns placed upon his head, having the purple robe, having people smiting him. They treat him as mockery, a king for the day. It's interesting, as we see this here, the game of the kings was very important, and it goes even beyond this. The idea of Pilate and other people mentioning him as kings, even other parts, such as uh, Mark's gospel, mentions that when Jesus was on the cross, people mocked him. Uh, that was on, you know... Those who said, you know, come down off the cross. He's crying out for Elijah. They're mocking him. But also see, if you be the ruler of Israel or the king of Israel, you can come down. That was one of the accusations or the mockeries that was made to Jesus. And finally, we come here and we come here to the verse 19. Jesus is then crucified. He's crucified between two thieves, which was not uncommon, by the way. Uh, let me say just a couple quick things about crucifixion uh, during this time. We sang, in fact, we sang this a song a little bit ago on a hill far away. Believe it or not, that's not how the Romans crucified people. They crucified people right on the edge of the road. They wanted you, the pass, the passerby, to be as close as possible to see that if you dare raise your fist up against Rome, this is going to happen to you. To be on a hill far away took the excitement out of that thing in from Roman perspective. So. They were, and that's exactly what we see in Scripture. People pass by, wagging, shaking their heads, because they were up close and they saw personally what was going on with Jesus. One thing that was very common, as well, uh, was this: that uh, when someone was crucified or they had suffered punishment, usually they were given a sign, a, a titulus, is the actually the Greek word that's used here in John 19, uh, basically a kind of a title or a declaration. That, or a notice, if you will, of the charges against the person 
who who is who is being executed is the idea. And so as we see this, we see here in 19 verse 19, and Pilate wrote a title. It's interesting that Pilate himself does this. John points this detail out. He points this, wrote a title, this notice, if you will, and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's interesting that in each of the Gospels, each of the Gospel writers word this a little bit differently, and John is the only one who lists out the complete title, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. John's the only one who does that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's the title that's presented at Jesus. I think it's, Jesus, it's interesting when we look at this, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus being from Nazareth. You remember what uh, Nathaniel said early on in Jesus' ministry? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, ooh, is a... A dusty little town up in the lower Galilee, about 400 people that lived there at that time. Not much, to be honest with you. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus wasn't crucified for being from Nazareth. He was crucified. Why? Because he was the king of the Jews. That's the difference that we see here. Verse 20 says this. There was some controversy about this. Verse 20 says this. The title then read, Many of the Jews... For the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh or close to the city, as it was written in Hebrew and in Greek and in Latin, the three predominant languages of that region right there. Verse 21, Then said the chief priests and the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate, for whatever reason, doesn't give a big example, but he says in verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. In other words, deal with it. <laughs> That's basically the idea that's going on here. As we see this, this still put on Jesus at his death the very fact of why he came to the world. Pilate probably wrote the king of the Jews as a way to demean and to mock the Jewish people that he was over. Uh, Pilate, if you know anything about his history, he reigned for 10 years as the prefect in, in uh, Judea, and he had a very uh, tenuous relationship uh, with the Jewish people there. It has evidence even by what, what took place here. Uh, be honest with you, as I read more about Pilate, I almost sympathize with him a little bit in all that. He actually found Jesus even innocent, not guilty. He's a just man. But yet, he says, what will I do with Jesus, the king of the Jews? Will I crucify your king? They said, release to us Barabbas and crucify Jesus, the king. It's interesting. Pilate, in a sense, was trying to mean Jesus and trying to mean the, the Jewish people for that. I almost make a mockery of the situation. But the thing is, the very person that was on the cross was indeed the king of the Jews. He really was. How ironic is this? My question to you and to the people who are standing by, do you know this king? Do you really know who this person is? This is none other than the son of David, Jesus the Messiah. But we praise God that Jesus triumphed as the king of the Jews. You see, Jesus as we see here in the Gospel accounts, and I pray even this week that you would take time and maybe read through, maybe even John, for example, the last few verses. By the way, when you look at the Gospel, the majority of the Gospel writings has to do about the last week of Jesus' life. Take time, slow down, and read and really appreciate what is taking, taking place here. But we know that Jesus died on that cruel, rugged cross. He was buried, put in a borrowed tomb. For three days, and then on that early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, he rose from the dead victorious. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. You see here, Jesus now triumphed as the king of the Jews. He is the servant who died 
but is also the king that shall reign. Philippians says this, that he was humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion of man, uh, he humbled himself and took upon him, or, and he basically went to the cross for us. Therefore, he is highly exalted. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The servant who died is the king that shall reign, and he reigns forevermore. Later on in Revelation chapter 15, we see that Jesus is king. He's victorious over the beast, over the Antichrist, and those who follow him, and he's praised. It says here, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. The holy ones, those that follow him. Jesus is the king, not just of the Jews, but all who follow him. Praise God for that. Do you know this king? Do you know Jesus Christ? We see when Jesus comes back to rule and reign, comes at the battle of Armageddon, he defeats the armies of the world, the Antichrist. He then sets up his millennial kingdom. And what is described? Jesus is described as the conquering king. It says in Revelation 19.16, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you know this king? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who changes life. And he is that promise fulfilled that was given to David and even all the way back to Adam and Eve that that Redeemer will finally crush the serpent's head. Our King is victorious. He's conquering and he shall reign. Do you know this King? That's the big question we have here. The return of the King is promised. I'm, I'm so thankful. I hope you did. Last week we had our annual prophecy conference. Uh, with Dr. Richard Schmidt, and we spoke heavily about the promises that Jesus Christ will rule and reign one day. And I mean, it's amazing when we think about this. This isn't a hope so, this is a no so. We believe the Bible for what it says, what he's, what he's saying here. So my question is this, do you know the king? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. As we mentioned, what was meant to denigrate, this title was meant to denigrate Jesus and the Jewish people, is now used in a sense of divine irony. By his death on the cross of Calvary, Jesus the Messiah became the very truth, the king of the Jews. Remember this, but his first coming was what? I think the people were expecting that deliver from Rome. But they did not expect, they were not looking for, at least most of them, that he would come really to redeem their hearts. To redeem them from the bondage of sin, greater than that from any oppression that Rome could offer. Jesus died on the cross, he was buried and he rose again the third day. And today he calls on all to come and place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and for the hope of glory. At Christ's first coming, he was rejected. At Christ's second coming, he will be accepted. One day, Jesus will return in glory and rule and reign on earth, sitting on the throne of David. From where? Jerusalem. This day is drawing near, I believe. Ever so close. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus is the King of Kings not just for the Jews, but for all who come to him. So today, the ultimate question I present before you, do you know this king? Do you know King Jesus? Pray this is a challenge to you. If you hear today, if you hear this message, I must ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Jesus, Jesus came to die as an innocent man. He never did anything wrong, never even once. He was perfect, without blemish, sinless, spotless, the Lamb of God. He came and lived a perfect life, and yet he was betrayed in the hands of sinners. He was crucified. He was buried. And he rose again. 
He did that for you. For God so loved the world, that's you and that's me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever, that's you and me, believeth in him, Jesus the Messiah, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There's a word in that familiar verse that should really catch our attention. And that's that word perish. It's a real thing. The fact of the matter is, for those who reject Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I don't want to hear it. Don't give me that. The thing is this, we have the wrath of God abiding on us until we are saved. Praise God for that call, for that free gift of salvation that he offers. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is that gift that God has given to you with paid with the ultimate price, the life and body and blood of Jesus Christ. Guess what? That's our king. That's our king. And he calls all to accept him as Savior.